What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. The world's coming after you. His fate is written. Shall we write yours too? If anything happens to them, there's no place that I won't go to kill you. That is written. A year ago, Tom Cruise single-handedly saved Hollywood from its pandemic malaise with Top Gun Maverick. Can Cruise, this time returning as Mission Impossible's Ethan Hunt, play the savior again? He can certainly play the savior on screen. Our review of Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning Part 1, and more ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. Josh, in a time-bending twist that Christopher Nolan himself might appreciate, we're recording this week's show in a pre-Oppenheimer world. But our listeners, when they hear it, they'll be living in a post-Oppenheimer world. It's almost here. We've been waiting and waiting for that. And Barbie, this is the week. It is the week. We are going to save our takes on Nolan's latest and Greta Gerwig's Barbie until next week. Give everybody a chance to see them and digest them. We do still plan to share some Nolan-related content this week, though. Our favorite Nolan performances, scenes, and films, at least as they stood back in July 2020 when we concluded our COVID year Christopher Nolan oeuvre review, that's going to get a replay, Josh. That was in the... Not the before times, I guess it was the mid times when yes. we decided to take that on. Yeah, we chronologically rewatched Nolan's filmography because it was 2020 and there were very few new releases in theaters. We had to have something to talk about, Josh. And also because Nolan's 11th feature, Tenet, was scheduled to be released in July, then in August, and it finally did come to theaters in September. So later in the show, you'll hear our review Awards, the culmination of that filmography rewatch. You will also hear our ranking of the entire Nolan filmography. But we're not done with Mission Impossible. We're going to give you our definitive rankings of the seven film series so far. And that's where we're going to start, Josh. Let's get to Tom Cruise and Dead Reckoning. Our lives are the sum of our choices. And we cannot escape the past. Ethan, this mission of yours is gonna cost you dearly. The world is changing. Truth is vanishing. War is coming. Discussing the previous Mission Impossible film, Adam, 2018's Fallout, I compared the series to the 10 or so movies that Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers made together in the 1930s. I love most of those. I think Swing Time is a straight-up masterpiece. But it's not for their plots, and it's not for their characters. Instead, those pictures are remembered for their unparalleled dance sequences. Similarly, I've been a fan of the Mission Impossible series, not because of these movies' complicated espionage narratives or the deep psychological exploration of Tom Cruise's IMF agent, Ethan Hunt. Nope, it's the audaciously conceived and astonishingly executed stunts. 
Ghost Protocol from 2011 gave us crews clinging to a glass skyscraper in Dubai. Fallout gave us crews shimmying up a rope to crawl onto the landing gear of a helicopter in flight. The new Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 gives us crews literally riding a motorcycle off of a cliff. Even so, Part 1 tests my Fred and Ginger theory. Working for the third time with crews in the series, director and co-writer Christopher McQuarrie, alongside Cruz as a producer, delivers a nearly three-hour spy movie about a rogue artificial intelligence undermining global stability. In between all the exposition that requires, the movie does pay some attention to Ethan as a character, though it's mostly by threatening to take away one brunette he cares for, Rebecca Ferguson, returning as rogue British agent Ilsa Faust, while introducing yet another, Haley Atwell, playing an international thief named Grace. What did you make of all this, Adam? Did Dead Reckoning pass the Fred and Ginger test for you, or did it not have to because you thought everything worked? Can I say both? It it kind of passed the Astaire Rogers test. I think that is a good analogy. I'm someone, though, who doesn't get too excited about stunts without stakes, though. And I don't mean stakes like, is the world going to end? Are people going to die, etc.? I mean, overall storytelling stakes. The stunts are enough to make it a good time. I'm recommending it. They're not enough to make it a great movie or even a great Mission Impossible movie. Like its AI villain, Reckoning may have become too self-aware, which isn't to say that I think, Josh, it's overrun with callbacks to the previous films in the series, though those are there, or overrun with homages to non-Mission Impossible action films, though those are there too. We get a reference to Battleship Potemkin and Buster Keaton's The General, and the opening, of course, had me thinking about The Hunt for Red October, whether that was intentional or not. I'm also not saying that it's interested in delivering only quote-unquote fan service delights, though those are there too. I think it's two things. The hardwiring, you talked about Ethan's character, the hardwiring of Ethan Hunt's character, perhaps his defining trait, is that he will always sacrifice and care more about his team than himself. That is something previously that was always expressed through action. Now, I'm not saying there's literally no dialogue about it in any of the other films. Of course there is. Matt Singer in his Mission Impossible ranking, I think, summed it up really nicely. He said that this is a series that has evolved from a few different things into a dramedy about a spy trying to achieve the proper work-life balance. <laughs> He's right. And so you are going to get some commenting on that. But it was predominantly displayed through Ethan's choices and his relentless commitment to those other characters. Reckoning's really the first time Macquarie and Cruz felt the need to tell us the emotional stakes rather than just showing us. He says to Grace, to that Haley Atwell character at one point, your life will always matter more to me than my own. I suppose I just always liked it better when that was clear given what he was doing on screen rather than having to come out and say it. But it's not just individual lines. Even in the big finale – the movie seemed to me to still be laboring to follow through on this idea with Grace repeatedly having to demonstrate that she trusts him and Ethan having to demonstrate he's worthy of that trust. It's just 
it's just clunky or or clunkier from a story and script standpoint than the best Mission Impossible films have been. And it doesn't help when you mentioned Fallout. It doesn't help when you're coming off what was probably the high point of the franchise in terms of both action and storytelling. The second thing, and I know when people say this isn't a spoiler, everyone rightfully gets nervous, but this is legitimately not a spoiler. Even if you're like me and spend almost no time watching trailers or paying attention to movie news and the latest rumblings coming out of productions, you know that Tom Cruise jumped off a cliff on a motorcycle with a parachute. Not a stunt double. Tom Cruise jumped off a cliff on a motorcycle with a parachute because Ethan has to land on a moving train. That's set up, and I promise I'll be careful with details here, by Ethan riding his motorcycle through the countryside while Benji, Simon Pegg's character, is in a car on his laptop trying to help him find the best route to the train or something. Meanwhile, all the real action, all the tension and suspense is occurring on the train. We've not only sidelined Ethan, we've sidelined Tom Cruise for a decent chunk of the finale. But we filled that space with banter between Pegg and Cruise that felt mostly tossed off and improvised and not well. And my sense of watching it all, here's where that self-aware component comes in, is that all of that delay wasn't so much about building anticipation for Ethan Hunt's ultimate arrival on the train and insertion back into the action. It was about building anticipation for us, the fortunate audience member, finally getting to watch Tom Cruise jump off a cliff on a motorcycle with a parachute. It's glorious. Don't get me wrong. I'd rather be fully invested and have that stunt be in service of the story rather than the story being in service of the stunt. Too often the latter appeared to me the imperative of Dead Reckoning. What about you? I think that's totally fair, and that's the best example to give. It's probably something that is more prominent throughout this film than most of the other Mission Impossibles, where the stunts are at the forefront in a slightly different way. There is a disconnect at moments. You you talk about it in terms of stakes, and you can you can also say it's a matter of emotional connection. And here's mm-hmm. where the dance sequences compare to the fight sequences. We've talked about this in you know discussing martial arts films. If there's not an emotional reason for the two characters to be fighting or to be dancing that is being expressed through their movements, yes, it's not going to be as affecting as a viewer. And the motorcycle jump, I experienced what you're saying, Adam, more afterwards when I tracked down a featurette about how they did it. Because I anticipated, I don't always do that with films afterwards. I I sort of have a love-hate relationship with having the magic ruined, but I thought we might talk about special effects in this film. Uh, maybe we'll get to that. So that's why I tracked it down. I wanted to see, you know, what exactly did they do here? And so I watched the featurette. It's like six or nine minutes about this stunt, and it completely supports what you're saying. It gives you the impression that Cruz in particular wanted to make this movie to do this stunt. And that's fine. That That's a perfectly fine motivation. But then the extra work has to be connecting it with the rest of the narrative, Mm -hmm. as you were just describing. And it is very stark in that sequence because we do have so much back and forth with what's happening on that train. So I think that's a good example to use for the stunts overtaking this series here, maybe in a way that they have not. All that being said, they were still impressive enough for me, quite similar to you, to recommend this movie 
it falls pretty squarely. We'll probably get to this for me in the middle of these films. It's not only the motorcycle jump. For me, what really sold it is the climactic sequence with the trains, which we should probably not talk about in detail. Mm -hmm. You've already referenced Buster Keaton. Uh, That's so apt. I would only emphasize that not only because of the audacity, the scale this movie is working on, which is similar to the awe-inspiring scale Keaton was working on in the general, but also the humor that runs throughout that sequence. It's very funny. I mean, as as much as you're gripping your seat, worried for these characters and their physical situation, you're laughing at, again, the audacity of what has been staged here and what's being pulled off in terms of the filmmaking. And there are little physical gags, too. Yeah. So A little so, bit like John Wick Chapter 4 in that way. You know what? it's finale. Yeah. Which we also talk about Keaton with that series. We did. We did. And, um, you know, people, I've seen people comparing those two and I I think John Wick is probably working at a higher level for me, at least than what we get here. So, yeah, I think I'm with you on a lot of those points. The other action sequence I would, um, choose to highlight, and this one does have a lot of character involved. And I think this is why it stands out to me because it is audacious, but not on the level of these other two. It's that car chase we get maybe, you know, here's the other thing. It doesn't come for like an hour into the film, but it's a car chase where Ethan Hunt and Grace happen to be handcuffed to each other. But at this point, Grace and Ethan Hunt don't quite know what to make of the other. And so they're having to figure that out while all of this is going on, while all of these multiple parties are chasing them through the streets. So there are character elements there, there are emotional elements, there's the physical bit of the handcuffs. And I think that's one of the stronger instances in the film of stunt work serving as character development as well, as narrative storytelling. There's narrative and storytelling heft there. But as I said, it comes an hour in. And, you know, for me... The movie just barely passes that bar of asking me to sit for, I think it's more like two hours and 45 minutes, the actual running time. And I'm getting three incredibly impressive, exciting stunt sequences. So, so characters. I wish there was a lot more Rebecca Ferguson here. When we get to our rankings, I will I mean, talk I'm always about, going to want that. You're I right. mean, she's really, yeah, she's really kind of sidelined eventually here, which is a shame. So, and you get, man, a lot of talk about the AI um, and a lot of talk about the between the various government agents who are dealing with this. And so it's pushing it. Dead Reckoning is pushing it by giving us this running time and great stunts, but not a ton of them. Um, so for me, it still does get a recommend, but maybe that's why I'm not as enthusiastic as I see a lot of people seem to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That sequence you're talking about where they're handcuffed in the Fiat in Venice and how it ties back to character. Well, it's really symbolic of what the whole film is going to ultimately be about, which is whether or not these two characters are going to tether themselves together or not. Here, Ethan is forcing the issue to keep her next to him. It's also not unlike the train sequence at the end and talking about some of that Keaton-esque humor. It's a little bit humorous as yes, well, for sure. right? Yep. There, There is definitely some comedy to that and some sleight of hand that is amusing. And here's where the self-awareness, I think, actually pays off a little bit. It's as if Macquarie and Cruz said, okay, everybody watching this, you all know that I'm doing these stunts myself or most of them myself. And you know that these are what really sell these films and what everyone gets excited about. And we also know that the character Ethan Hunt is capable of basically anything. Okay. Well, you want to see him do this car chase with one hand tied behind his back. 
we'll give it to you. Here you go. And they and they do that. And yet only driving with one hand and it might even be his offhand. It's still, of course, thrilling. I I haven't seen that featurette that you mentioned, but I did see something else I want to bring up to kind of go back to to my point And also it seems like yours. I saw this film, had my experience with it, knew how I felt about it. A few nights later, I'm I'm doom scrolling, as most of us do, late at night through social media. A junket clip with Peg and Ferguson pops up where they start laughing at a question that begins with the woman saying something like, when you first look at the script or you first get the script, and they're laughing, Peg explains, because apparently they don't really get completed scripts. It's all sort of taking shape as they go. He says that Macquarie's approach is to think through all of those major set pieces Mm -hmm. and their multitude of logistics and work all of those out and then fill in the spaces around them. Peg doesn't mean this in any way as an indictment of Macquarie or the process. He's he's complimenting him, actually. And he should be. These these are good movies that audiences and critics love. Most rankings consider the Macquarie directed ones and the one he wrote, Ghost Protocol, to be the better or among the best films in the franchise. I assume his process on this one was the same on those previous films. Clearly, it's working. Dead Reckoning, though, was the first time where those scenes showed for me. And I, I, I mean, I actually felt like the movie announced those sequences. Here we go. Buckle up. It's coming. We're done with whatever dialogue and character bits we, we had to get out there. But now let's let's get to the fun stuff that kind of speaks to this idea that it's all been sort of reverse engineered around these big sequences. Again, they probably always have been that way. This time, I really noticed it. And I noticed it because, in part, of those character scenes and the dialogue. Sometimes they're just not very good. (laughs) The Benji-Ethan banter isn't very good. There's a crucial emotional moment between Cruz and Atwell on the train where Cruz silently reacts and he usually nails these beats. He nails just reacting with his face, just giving it to you in the, in the eyes. It's all there here. I got, I got nothing. It was like a throwaway reaction. And there's an early scene with Carrie Elwes in his office. It goes forever. (laughs) Do you think it's meant to be a joke? See, that was where I was going to go. Josh, all of these people in this room, all of them getting these little bits of lines. And a phrase. They finishing, each get a phrase. They get a phrase and they finish each other's sentences and around and around we go. They're, they're giving this man they refer to as the secretary. I don't know what he's the secretary of. I think his name is Denlinger. They're giving him the briefing on all this. And all I could sense watching it is, is this supposed to be a parody of yeah. what one of these briefings would be it's supposed to be overly stiff and awkward with everyone finishing their sentences. If so, well, I guess I got it, but I didn't find it particularly funny. (laughs) At some point, I just got tired of it and thought it was a bit too tedious. So all of this plays into your point, too, about the, the running time. I've never really noticed the length of a Mission Impossible movie until now. And if you're giving me a part one where I know this is all just kind of setting up an entire second film, mm-hmm. there really can't be any fat on the bone. And right. There is. Oh, man. And and there is. And another example of that fat, I think, is 
we get at least once and maybe a, a third time after that one you just described of all the people in the room using those phrases, the same pattern plays out in other conversations later. So it almost feels to me less like a wink, wink joke. We're going to have a different sort of fun with this than, you know, a, a crutch for we got to dump some more information here. What's a way we can do it quickly, involve a lot of faces and make it seem a little more interesting than one person just spouting all this. It seemed to me like a way to inject a little more action and excitement, but it does it does come across as as comical for sure. There's a lot of that with Rames too. Not that he's in this yes, film yes. much, but with Ving Rames' character in particular, it's like he constantly is repeating things or saying things to make sure everybody's following along and is on board. And a lot of times in films like this that can be confusing and you're dealing with these ideas of artificial intelligence and whatever, you want that or you can appreciate that as an audience member. And here I'm like, Ving, they just said this two minutes ago. I got it. <laughs> like I'm, I'm following along. Why, why are you repeating this? They're, they're redundant beats throughout this. Yeah. Now, there's still some characters who are fun to watch. You do not get nearly enough Rebecca Ferguson, as we already noted. I like she's kind of nameless, faceless, right? But I, I like the Palm Clementif baddie here, and I like her as a counter yeah. to the the Guardians of the Galaxy character that she plays That's here. True. I mean, she's she's a badass and she's kind of fun to watch on screen, but you are just waiting for those big stunt sequences to hit and when they do they pay off but what they're what they're built around isn't enough to put this in that upper echelon of mi films no and i would say in terms of the performers that Haley atwell great at first incredibly vibrant and brings a spark as this thief who we don't quite know what she's up to but she sort of becomes more of a damsel in distress as the story goes on, which is odd because they're also setting her up to potentially join Ethan's team. Right. And just to go back to Ferguson, not that she has to do what Ferguson does, but when they're both in the same movie, it became obvious to me that um, she she's lacking a certain physicality that Ferguson has that seems necessary to be like a full-on agent like, you know, the others on the team. So Haley Atwell was, you know, kind of a welcome presence, but not entirely successful for me. You see Vanessa Kirby again, who returns, um, you know, she's playing this this uh, black market broker. She's fun. I don't think anyone flashes their eyes quite the same as Vanessa Kirby does on screen. And she gets to have a little different fun when she, yes. when Grace goes in disguise as her later on the train. And so this gives Kirby a chance to play that character in a slightly different register. I think she's very good in those moments. And mm -hmm. I did want to ask you real quick before we wrap up um, about the use of CGI here, because I've seen some comparisons about, you know, regretting the CGI in Dial of Destiny, which I understand, even though for me it didn't ru ruin the movie, and looking forward to and or appreciating a CGI-less film like Dead Reckoning. And I got to say, you know, it's employed here fairly skillfully, but it's here. This isn't like a, an effects-free film. And, and it goes back to that featurette. Um, one reason, I, that's the reason I wanted to watch it. And um, I don't think this is a spoiler, but they did build and digitally, um, you know, digitally cover a way for that motorcycle to actually leap off the the 
peak, which is fine. I'm not taking away from the mm-hmm. stunt at all, but that's just to make the point that it is there. It's being used. It's obviously used in that submarine sequence that opens the film and a couple instances elsewhere. So I do appreciate the live action, pure filmmaking going on here, but it's not like this movie is completely free of it. I will confess that I'm not sure I can watch and immediately delineate what, which is which is what, a good sign, what are right? The the CGI uses and what aren't. You're right. That is a good sign. It's more about how those scenes make me feel. Sometimes yeah. it's blatantly obvious and those scenes often aren't the most successful. But in the Venice car chase or even in that motorcycle jump at the end, is it is it that feeling that you're there in the car with them and the stakes are yeah, it is about these characters and whether or not they're really in peril. And I certainly felt that watching those big stunt sequences here. I'd agree. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 is out. It's playing in wide release. If you see it and agree or disagree with us, we'd love to hear from you. Feedback at filmspotting.net. We do have our Mission Impossible ranking coming up. I can understand you're very upset. Kittredge, you've never seen me very upset. All right, Enough is enough. You have bribed, cajoled, and killed, and you have done it using loyalties on the inside. You want to shake hands with the devil? That's fine with me. I just want to make sure that you do it in hell. Henry Turney's Kittredge in a great scene in the mission that started it all. 1996's Mission Impossible, directed by Brian De Palma. Yes, Turney is back in Dead Reckoning. We're going to share our Mission Impossible rankings here in a bit. But first, some poll results to get us in the right frame of mind. A couple weeks back, as we were anticipating Dead Reckoning. So keep in mind, Dead Reckoning, not a part of this poll, even though it would have made the math work out a little better, a little more balanced. We asked you, we posed our own Mission Impossible. We wanted you to save only part of the Mission Impossible franchise. You could save either one through four, where you got four films, each from a different director, De Palma, John Woo, J.J. Abrams, then Brad Bird, or Mission Impossible's five and six, basically the the Macquarie-led Mission Impossible films. I thought it would come out this way, or at least I thought the winner would win. I didn't know it would be quite the trouncing it was, Josh. Yeah, incredibly strong win for Christopher McQuarrie. 71% of folks wanted these last couple of Mission Impossible films. Jonathan in Denver, Colorado says, I've liked every entry since three more than the last, which feels like a rare compliment for a franchise. In terms of eras, I'd argue that one and two feel like attempts at launching versions of the franchise that weren't entirely successful before three established a blueprint that subsequent entries have fleshed out and improved upon. That being said, it hadn't occurred to me until this week's newsletter that goes out from our producer Sam to film spotting family members to consider the divide between the early strategy of switching up directors for each movie and then the Macquarie administration, I guess we could call it. That makes a lot of sense. It does make a lot of sense, though. Not only did we end up with a poll that's a little bit out of balance, you also have that thing, Josh, where you could kind of put Ghost Protocol, even though it was directed by Brad Bird, you could almost put that in the Macquarie administration because he was a co-writer on that film. And it it feels to me like there is a real divide after three, where yeah. once we get to 2011, these last four have all taken a certain form, even though Brad Bird did direct that one. Yeah, I think that's fair. We also heard from Andy Mitchell, one-time PA here on the show. 
And he says he's once again in the minority on this. The fact that more people would willingly choose to throw some iconic action sequences, the Langley heist, the Burj Khalifa, and Philip Seymour Hoffman in The Incinerator is baffling. It is baffling. I have to say, I I really hadn't fully considered how hurtful these poll results were. And I think I even voted for Macquarie. But when you think about losing the Langley heist, definitely one of the best sequences in the Mission Impossible series. And I think that's a top five I've already suggested maybe we should go ahead and do when part two comes out. Let's rank the best sequences in Mission Impossible. Langley heist has to be considered. Burj Khalifa definitely has to make the list somewhere. And I don't think we'd have enough to do a really good Mission Impossible villains list. But if we did... I'm sorry, Philip Seymour Hoffman would definitely be at the top of it. Here's Aaron Larson from Decora, Iowa. Decora, Decora, I think I've asked you this before, Adam. Oh, it's it's definitely Decora. Had a lot of friends who went to Luther College there in Decora. There we go. Mission Impossible 1 through 4 includes a bad movie, two very good movies, and a great movie. Mission Impossible 5 and 6 includes a good movie and a great movie. If we average those out, option 1 and option 2 are roughly the same level of quality. But why are we averaging them out? Option two includes two non-bad movies. Option one includes three non-bad movies, one of which is the best (laughs) film in the franchise to date, Ghost Protocol. I've got to go with option one. My head's spinning, Aaron. (laughs) Yeah. Is this Aaron Larson and Decora or The Entity? I think it might be The Entity doing the math here. Liz says, I think I'd take the first era and just pretend MI2 doesn't exist, mostly for PSH in three. There you go. No villain has made Ethan so desperate, and Ghost Protocol is excellent. The last two installments have been fun, but I think I'd mourn the loss of one, three, and four more than I'd celebrate the gain of five and six. Yeah, that's that's really the rub here, Josh, and that's a perfect transition into our Mission Impossible rankings. You put yours out on Letterboxd already. I wanted to go through this exercise and talk it through on the show before I posted anything myself. And I'm supposing you didn't do this, but like like Aaron and like the entity, I did want to take a little bit of an analytical approach to considering it or at least see where my gut instinct went against the conventional wisdom and see if I actually had any Josh Larson-esque controversial opinions? Was I going to go against the norm here in any significant way? Seven films, counting, Dead Reckoning. I looked at David Sims' list. I looked at Rotten Tomatoes in terms of the critics, the overall percentage, no matter how flawed that is. Matt Singer did a list, IndieWire, Collider, Esquire. I made mine first, and then I saw how I sort of stacked up and I definitely have some conventional ideas and a couple controversial or semi-controversial ones. Why don't you hit me, Josh, with something about your ranking? Even if you don't have the consensus in front of you, you probably have a decent sense of this. You've seen a few of them online. Give me something about your ranking that you describe as a pretty conventional idea. You're in lockstep with most people when it comes to this film or these films and the franchise. The lockstep is probably having Mission Impossible 2 last. Yeah. It's one I'd like to revisit, you know, having great appreciation for a lot of the work of John Woo. It pains me to say that, but it's honestly how I felt then. I've probably seen it once maybe since it originally came out, and that wasn't enough to make me reappraise that assessment. And certainly that memory... You know, when I've seen some of these more recent installments, they have 
been far stronger experiences than my memory of Mission Impossible 2. I'm with you there. That's my most conventional opinion as well. I have the John Woo film as my least favorite entry in the series. Another conventional idea for me is that I do think Mission Impossible Fallout, the sixth film, is by far the best. I think it's a clear number one. A lot of other rankings also have it at number one or really never lower than two. It's up there for most people considering the franchise. And I look back on it, Josh, I only gave it four stars out of five. Probably should have given it at least that extra half star. When you think about how prominent Rebecca Ferguson is in this film, I like the Henry Cavill character. I particularly like the Henry Cavill character because I love the bathroom brawl. You get the CNN reveal. You get the halo and parachute sequence. You get the Paris chase, that helicopter chase at the end. Spoilers, that's going to be in contention for my number one in the overall Mission Impossible franchise. And it's another one that gives us a lot of great character development with Ethan, but doing it in a way that I think is really effective, unlike Dead Reckoning. And it's a film we talked about at the time. It made me reconsider where I viewed Ethan Hunt in the pantheon of Tom Cruise characters and performances. That was all, all fallout. So for me, definitely my favorite. Yeah, and I'm not controversial it sounds like by having Fallout number two, that's, that's where bit, it is for me. Yeah, not enough. And the lines between these as well, I should say, I don't think, you know, over on my Larson film site, I, I use four star rankings and I think I have almost every one of these movies that I've liked at three out of four stars. So that gives you a sense of how close they are. Fallout, I've got that ranking. And then what I have at number one, same ranking, which is rogue nation and for me maybe the distinction between those two is although ferguson is in both i love so much her introduction in rogue nation mm-hmm. it may just come down to that that dress which i've described as as being made of melted butter that she wears in the opera sequence where is really her full-scale introduction into this series she just brings so much to it in that sequence and throughout that film. So yeah, easy to say, but she's in Fallout 2. I get it. But her introduction and also some of the sequences there, you know, that opening clinging to the aircraft, the side of the aircraft as it takes off, I think it did begin to elevate this series to a different level that it's mostly, for the most part, stayed at since. I mean, I've liked all the ones that we've gotten after Rogue Nation, but that's what I have up at my top of my list and then fall out. And I'm with you. Did you have Ghost Protocol at three? Is that what you said? Yeah, it looks like if I'm hearing you correctly, you've got it five, six, four, and I've just got it six, five, four. Right. To start. Yeah. Yeah. Ghost Protocol is in my number three slot. I mean, that Dubai skyscraper sequence might be <laughs> enough to put it where it is, if not higher. It's so incredible. And I just keep using the word audacious, you know, even mm-hmm. to envision something like that. And then execute it as expertly as they do. What about an opinion that might be controversial or slightly controversial? I don't think I have one here. I mean, I could go through the rest of my Yeah, list. I'm not sure you do. Dead Reckoning smack dab in the middle because I do have some of those qualms. Mission Impossible 3 comes after that. And then my last two, you know, the original film is in sixth slot and Mission Impossible 2 is in the last slot, as I said. I don't think you do have any controversy here, which is rare 
I'm going to be the one that maybe offers some people something to gasp at a little bit, and that's usually you. But I would argue, having looked at a fair number of these lists, that it's minor, but having three ahead of one could be a little bit of a surprise to a lot of people. Three, one, and two in some order are usually near the bottom of these lists, but there's a lot of love out there and a lot of reappreciation, reconsideration for the De Palma original. Matt Singer has the first installment as the third best film. IndieWire has it as the second best film. Collider has it as the fourth best film. So you will see a fair number of people, I think, if you were just doing the averages, if you were really doing the math, I think one actually usually comes out ahead of three. You've got three ahead of one, as do I. Yeah. And I think, you know, you're always going to have the De Palma horde coming out whenever a film of his is on a list to strongly support and argue for that auteurist stamp, you know, that you can usually find in his efforts. Mm -hmm. So we know that my bottom film is two and that's not controversial. We know that my top three are six, five and four, and that's not controversial. So it really just comes down to those middle films in the series and my ranking and I do actually have Dead Reckoning. I have it second to the bottom. I have okay. it. That would be slightly controversial. Some people have it much more in the middle. Like you do Collider even put it at number one. Esquire put it at number There's two. There's a lot of enthusiasm out I there know, for this movie, which does, as we discussed, perplex me a bit. Yeah, I've got it just ahead of the John Woo film, which is the only one I would give a negative rating to. I suppose then I just explained it talking about your list the fact that i have three ahead of one might be surprising to people so mission impossible 3 is actually my fourth favorite i've got it in that upper tier mi movie and it's because of philip seymour hoffman and all of that that character building that we do get that is set the set the foundation for all of these films that have followed now if i rewatched some of these films is it possible, Josh, that I like the third film enough to be even second or third? Maybe. I would have to take another look at these films. And do I really stand by my my ranking of Rogue Nation just slightly ahead there of Ghost Protocol? I think I do. And I think it's because of the Rebecca Ferguson component. But I would love to revisit these films at some point. We'll get another chance. Part two is next summer. I don't recall if they've announced exactly when but yeah our hope is to do a top five list before that of our favorite stunts action sequences and so very good chance we'll be revisiting all of these when that rolls around for our film spotting family members or those who aspire to be family members we have reviewed not every installment of the mission impossible franchise but quite a few of them going back to 2006's mission impossible 3 i think Maybe it was Ghost Protocol, Josh, that for whatever reason, maybe it was summer and didn't work out with our schedules. I don't think that got a full review on the show, but you can find those episodes in the Film Spotting Archive, which is available to family members every single episode, filmspottingfamily.com to learn more. You can find me under the lights, diamonds under my eyes. This is the best day ever. It is the best day ever. So is yesterday, and so is tomorrow, and every day from now until forever. Yeah. Do you guys ever think about dying? I don't know, Josh. Maybe Greta Gerwig's Barbie is a lot closer in spirit to Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer than we imagined. Could be. Seems dark. Seems dark. They both open wide this weekend. As people are listening, Barbenheimer 
is upon us. We are planning to review both on next week's show. As of this taping, I think you've seen at least one of them. Have you seen both of them, Josh? Have not. Oppenheimer is tonight. Barbie was last night. Thankfully, they added a second Barbie screening. They were they had them paired up to just feed feed this rivalry I mean, that shouldn't time, exist. The publicist originally had press screenings at the same time. But yes, they added one for Barbie. Monday night, I was able to make that one. Not going to say anything else, as we'll be discussing next week. But Oppenheimer, can't wait. That's tonight. I saw someone speculate on Twitter or threads where you can find both of us. This is true. At Film Spotting, at Larson on Film. Please do follow us there. I saw someone suggest that that was a sign that the studio clearly is not fully backing Barbie, that they scheduled the press screening at the same time with Oppenheimer like they were trying to like they were trying to hide it or something, put it under the covers. You know, I had that thought because doing this long enough now, starting to read the tea leaves mm-hmm. of press scheduling of screenings, I had that brief thought, but I was happy to see that when they were scheduled another one, I could just put that away. Like, that's not what they were trying to do here. So, yeah, I think Debbie went with me and she she thought, I think they did it just so all the publicists could come to both because pretty much everyone was at Barbie last night. So that's a more likely reason, I think. It definitely is weird, though. I can't think of a case where that's happened before. No, when two profile films are opening, even within two weeks of each other, let alone the same day, they're always staggered. So Mm -hmm. it was a little odd. In two weeks, Film Spotting will become a promotional arm of the Josh Larson book tour. You have your second book coming out, Fear Not, A Christian Appreciation of Horror. You want to give everyone the elevator pitch? Sure. And this is a bit of an early surprise release, Adam. At least it was to me. So Film Spotting listeners are among the first to hear that the book is actually available. I've been working with an on-demand publisher for this one. So it's kind of a unique process where once everything's good to go, they just kind of push the green light and you can order it right away. So it caught me a little bit by surprise doing something of a soft launch. If any Film Spotting listeners want to pick it up, through the big place or anywhere else you can find it and get an early read and share those reviews. I'd appreciate it. But this is another work of theological criticism, I would say, film criticism, like my first book, Movies Are Prayers, basically looking at the horror genre, breaking it down into subgenres and exploring how each subgenre examines a particular shared fear in a way that resonates with the Christian experience. So yeah, if you're a fan of horror already, I hope you'll appreciate it. I think you will on this different angle taken. And if you're not a fan of horror, this is kind of the mission of the book to make you a fan of horror, particularly if you've been raised in a tradition that has tried to scare you away from it. Here, I'm going to try to make the case and bring you into the fold. We've got a plan to do a fear not related top five, something horror related. We've done a lot of horror related top fives over the years. So coming up with a brand new angle is the endeavor here and we've got the film spotting pa team on it we also have all of you listening who may have some good ideas please do get those in feedback at filmspotting.net we plan to share that top five in two weeks and of course i'm sure we'll get a little bit more book talk as well feedback at filmspotting.net is the email now speaking of horror genres we've got a new deeply flawed poll question that will get us prepared for that show your book being structured around those various genres and subgenres, 
zombie movies, monster movies, found footage, etc. We're going to pose to you the the multiplex test. I talked about it last week in our top five actor-director duos, and it's one I like to use as a little thought experiment often on the show. Imagine you're at a theater. There's four screens. They're all showing horror movies. You know the genre's horror. The only other thing you know about them is the type of horror movie. There's no title outside the door, but what you see is, oh, you know it's rated R as well. So things are going to get real. All you know is you can walk into one that says cults, ghosts, home invasion, or demonic possession. You have to pick which one. Tell us the one you would walk into. And I specify that because I can't answer for you which one I'd walk into. I can only answer for you which one I would definitely not walk into. And I think a lot of regular listeners, longtime listeners, can say it along with me. Demonic possession. (laughs) I know I'm not going there. So those were the categories as set up by producer Sam, inevitably deeply flawed. What do you make of the four he chose? How do those fit within the genres? And I don't want you to get too deep into this because maybe it's something we'll talk about in a couple of weeks when we talk about your book more. Did you come around to appreciate more one of these genres or subgenres or maybe appreciate less in the course Hmm. of doing the research for the book? Great question. Maybe I'll answer that next time and try to think of some more specific examples. It was mostly revisiting, so I can't say I did any major discoveries, but definitely some reappreciations. As to these options, yeah, you could work backwards like you're doing. I think that is the right instinct. While I know I don't want to endure a story like this, but the predicament, if you're a fan of horror, is that's also the pull towards it. The push away is related to the pull towards it. At least that's how I experience it. I want those movies that are going to unnerve me, even though I shouldn't want to be unnerved. And so for that case, I should, what I'm torn between here is either home invasion or ghosts. And I'm going to go with ghosts because I probably come away from a ghost story appreciating the overall narrative more than I do a home invasion Mm -hmm. horror picture, even though both really can get to me and bother me. So demonic possession, not so much. Cults, that's an interesting category Sam came up with. I'll have to think about where that would fall within the book structure. I don't have a chapter on horror cult movies. Um, But yeah, for me, it's ghosts or home invasion. And right now I'm going to say ghosts. I'm going to go with ghosts. I would probably align cults a little bit more with demonic possession movies, right? I think about cults. Yeah, that can happen. Worshipping Satan. Maybe Sam is talking about worshipping a cult leader more like Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene or something, which maybe isn't really a horror movie. So I would attach it to that one. I think I'd go with Ghosts too because unlike you, well, intellectually, I can think of it in terms of I want to be unnerved. That's why you watch a horror film. But I don't actually want to be unnerved. That's it. And and of those two, I'd rather go to a ghost movie. I like your point about maybe just appreciating the narrative structure more or the the room for more variety within the narrative structure. But I don't really worry about ever having to face a ghost in my daily mm. life. And, mm. and how I'll react or what it might do to me. But home invasions are too real. Thinking about, thinking about how you would react in that scenario, especially, I think, as a father, 
as a mother too, but as a father, where there's this expectation that you're protecting the family and how are you going to behave and are you going to rise to the, the masculine challenge and can you overcome, can you overpower these forces that are trying to do the worst thing you can possibly imagine, which is harm your family? Yeah, don't need it. Don't need it. <laughs> Maybe that one's even worse than demonic possession. I don't know. Well, and that category did allow me to do a first-time watch. I finally caught up with The Purge from 2013, which I was always intrigued by. And yeah, no surprise. I did like it, but it's a rough watch. The Purge is rough. We're not giving you another option as we usually do, but you can make your case for some other genre in the comments. In early voting on Twitter and Facebook, cults are in the lead, but not by that much so you can still help decide this one vote in the poll and leave a comment at filmspotting.net they've got a new pairing over at our sister podcast the next picture show we wanted to be sure to let you know about they're looking at the new theater camp which i've heard very good things about and pairing it with christopher guests waiting for guffman so a natural pairing there can't wait to hear what those folks say about it. You can listen to Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky on the next Picture Show every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also get more information at nextpictureshow.net. We also wanted to give you a quick reminder about helping us reach new listeners. You can do that by leaving us a rating or a positive review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And here's another way to support us. Join the Film Spotting family. You can listen to episodes early ad-free. You'll also get Sam's weekly newsletter in your inbox, and you can choose to receive monthly bonus shows. We are recording just after we're done here. Going to bring Sam in <laughs> for this one. Me. He wanted Don't to be a part me. of it, even though it was his monstrous idea, a Barbenheimer draft. So let me get this right, Adam. Basically, we have all the films directed by Christopher Nolan. Yes. The two films so far directed by Greta Gerwig. That's right. And we're going to each take a turn drafting the ones we want the most, however we define it. We'll get into that, how we're deciding what to do with this. Well, now that you say it, we're going to have some terms we have to figure out because I thought based on our conversation, not that this is necessarily going to shape a lot at the top of the draft, but I thought that we were going to include all of Nolan's directed films. Gerwig's directed films, which actually would mean, in my mind, you could go with the co-directed Nights and Weekends that she sure. made with Joe Swanberg. But I thought we were maybe going to include the the two Baumbachs that she wrote. I know that doesn't seem to fit, but just to balance things out a little bit more, I thought maybe Francis Ha and Mistress America were going to be part of this. That's fine. We can do that. Oh, man, we're going to have to figure that out. May have to vote on it. We'll, we'll hash it out on the bonus show. Yeah, should be fun. Filmspottingfamily.com is where you can hear it. To do what I do, I need some idea of the threat we face. As I understand it, we're trying to prevent World War III. I'm not saying I'm again here. No. Something worse. Christopher Nolan was determined to get his palindromic 12th feature tenant on the big screen during the height of the COVID pandemic. It finally made it to theaters a few months later than originally planned in September 2020. Made less than $10 million, Josh, its opening weekend, only grossed $58 million domestically during its masked and socially distanced run. I know we both saw it in the theater, which is 
crazy now looking back that that we were in a theater in fall 2020, but it happened. I know it did. It makes you realize how long those weeks and months were mm-hmm. because just on instinct, I would have told you, no, that had to have come out the next year and we saw it then. But no, I think this this timeline does seem right, which, yeah, is incredible. Might have been the first film possibly that yeah. I saw at least in a theater since March of that year. We're talking about Tenet because its release inspired our 2020 Nolan Oeuvre review. We rewatched all of his films from 1999's Following, in that case, a watch, I think, for both of us. Had you seen Following? Nope, that was the first time. That was the only one we both hadn't seen all the way up to 2017's Dunkirk, the exception being The Dark Knight. We had already revisited that in 2018 for its 10th anniversary. I believe we just kind of lumped the three Batman films together as part of the overview. It all led up to and culminated with our Nolan Awards, our favorite performances, scenes, and we had our Nolan moments from those watches. And we did also present our Nolan ranked lists, which shifted somewhat after those rewatches. In anticipation of the new Oppenheimer, we thought it made sense to go back, replay this conversation. We cover many of the highlights of Nolan's impressive filmography, should get everyone in the right frame of mind to go into Oppenheimer. And really thinking about whether you think of Nolan as one of your favorite filmmakers or not, hopefully it will at least get you thinking about the things he does exceptionally well and some of the best moments from his career. Radio listeners, you're hearing an edited version of this show. If you'd like to hear all of the talking, get the full episode, check out filmspotting.net or wherever you get your podcasts. From July 2020, here's our Nolan Overview Awards. That's what it's all about. Interrupting someone's life, making them see all the things that they took for granted. Like when they go back and buy all this stuff from the shelves of the insurance money, they'll have to think for the first time in a long time why they wanted all this stuff, what it's for. Take it away. Show them what they had. There it is. Nolan the magician, Nolan the philosopher, right at the beginning of his career. That clip from his debut film, 1999's Following. It is time for our Nolan Oeuvre Review Award. So we went back to the beginning. Now we're at the end, Josh, and we're going to share our favorite performances, our favorite moments, and the definitive individual rankings of Christopher Nolan's work. We do have a little bit of business to take care of the name for this Awards. We always come up with some name that ties back to the marathon itself, the filmmaker or artist in question. We did get this from Ben Schultz in Denton, Texas, who said, I'm sure others have suggested this, but what about naming your Nolan Awards the Syncopies after his production studio? I always look forward to seeing that maze logo in front of each of his movies. A great idea from Ben. We referenced the Polaroids earlier, and I think we'll hear from the listener who suggested that in a bit. And finally, I teased this on an earlier show, Josh. Henrik Hansen, Maidstone Kent, said, I've been enjoying the overview tremendously. Following and insomnia were new to me, and getting an overall feel for Nolan's work has given me something to look forward to in this awful year. I've been thinking about what you should call the awards when you wrap this up. A whopping 30% of his films have one-word titles beginning with the letters in. Is there a hidden meaning there? Should the awards be the innies? Or maybe, not sure about the spelling here, the Bois Awards for the Inception soundtrack. As for the awards themselves, I hope you do best ensemble. Sorry, 
Henrik. Also, the most Michael Caine award, The Dark Knight Rises, <laughs> is a shoe in here. Master Bruce, I will not bury another Batman. They are re-releasing Inception, oh, Interstellar, and Dunkirk. There, oh, come not on. even half, like like a tenth-hearted. <laughs> Henrik says they are re-releasing Inception, Interstellar, and Dunkirk at the cinemas here, which have just reopened. So tempting, but we are still cautious. We've been in lockdown so long, we are a little gun-shy about putting our heads over the parapet. Thanks for the show. Adam's David Bowie performance has made it into my shortlist for Best Massacre Theater Performance 2020, <laughs> but you will both have to get your skates on if you want to beat Michael Phillips in Rio Bravo, of course, yes, <laughs> memorably, as Walter Brennan at our live show, 15th anniversary at the Music Box. So we have three candidates, and maybe one or two I overlooked from listeners. I apologize if I did. The Polaroids, we could go with the Syncopies, or we could go with the Bois Awards. And thinking about how important these soundtracks are to his films, we talked about it a lot in Zimmer's score, in particular with Dunkirk. That's where I'm leaning, Josh. How do you feel? The Bois. Exactly. I, I like it because we can do that over and over and yeah, annoy people. It's fun to say. But we didn't spend much time on the Bois when we this talked. This is a good point. And, and now correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's mostly used in the trailer. That's where it became iconic, right? Is is it that instrumental in the film itself? And and We should know the answer to we that. We should know. The, I do not. <laughs> I remember at the end of Inception thinking, wow, I remember there was a lot more Bois in that. And- I think it's mostly in the trailer. So that's a count against the Bois for me. Bois. So we haven't decided. We haven't decided. I'm I'm thinking this out here. All right. The syncopes, I looked this up as you were talking. Yeah. Syncope, apparently, and this is from a very trusted source called Wikipedia, Adam. It derives from, it's spelled differently, syncope with an E on the end, the medical term for fainting or loss of consciousness. Now, I don't know if that's what Nolan was going for. It kind of applies, obviously, to some of his films. So I do like that. I like the syncopes. That has it to its advantage. The Polaroids is just, it's kind of perfect, I think. I think I'm leaning towards the Polaroids. Just this idea of, of a snapshot. These are snapshots of his career that we're offering here uh, with our awards. Okay. So that's where I'd lean, but, you know. As you know, if you ask me tomorrow what we decided to name these, I will have forgotten. So I'm not I hear all you. that invested. <laughs> go ahead and make the call. No, I'm either tempted to make that call, go with what you said, or we could wait and we could let Sam break the tie here. The producer will decide Let's do what that. the title should be, as like it should it. be. So Sam's going to make the call. I guess you'll see it officially when the show posts. So we are going to start with best supporting performance, and I will get into some of the candidates here, and we'll get to our choices, but we thought we would hear from another listener, longtime listener, Josh Youngerman, who has maybe a little bit of a surprise pick. Josh, let's hear it. Hey, Adam and Josh from Filmspotting. This is Josh Youngerman calling in. Uh, obviously, this is the Keith Ledger Memorial list. Um, he's clearly the best supporting performance in the, in the filmography. So taking out uh, Ledger as the Joker, I'm stuck between uh, Tom Hardy as Bane in The Dark Knight Rises and Killian Murphy as the Shivering Soldier in Dunkirk. And I think I'm going with Killian Murphy for, uh, in Dunkirk for a few reasons. I think watching his uh, Nolan's oeuvre, I was struck at just how valuable of a presence Murphy is throughout his entire filmography. His performance in, uh, as Scarecrow and Batman in the Batman trilogy is, is just a lot of fun to watch and it's terrifying. And then I really love his work as Robert Fisher in Inception. But I think in Dunkirk as the shivering soldier, he only has about 10 or 15 minutes of screen time. 
Uh, he doesn't have a lot of dialogue, but I'm, I was just haunted. And I'm haunted every time I watch the film by um, that character's performance and the way that character moves on screen, the, the physical performance he gives, and the confrontation with um, Rylance at the end, it, it's just heartbreaking. Anyways, looking forward to hearing your picks, um, and hopefully Christopher Nolan uh, solves the coronavirus soon. Thank you, Josh, for that. He helps us there by taking care of a little bit of housekeeping. Not only does he have maybe an off-the-beaten-path choice for best supporting performance, going with Killian Murphy specifically for Dunkirk. And until I saw him in Dunkirk, I had forgotten that he was one of the handful of actors here we'll get to who appears in multiple films from the overview in a supporting turn. But he also says... This pretty much has to be the Heath Ledger Memorial Awards, doesn't it? And I do think, to make it interesting at all, we probably have to set Ledger aside and go with someone else. Are you in agreement with that, Josh? Yeah, that works for me. I mean, it also relieves us of the debate of, is he a supporting actor in The Dark Knight? Yeah. Is he a lead? We'll just we'll just mark it as the best performance uh, in Christopher Nolan's films. Okay, so we're in agreement, and I'm going to give you some more of the candidates for best supporting performance from our Christopher Nolan Oeuvre review, along with Killian Murphy, who appears in both Dunkirk and multiple Dark Knight trilogy films. Does he appear in all three? I can't remember if he shows up in The Dark Knight, Josh, do you? Oh, yes, because he's there at the very beginning with the parking garage van and the dogs fight, right? Yes. He's there, yeah. Yeah, I think your memory is correct. So four Nolan films. We also have Michael Caine appearing in more than four films. Michael Caine, there. That's what I gave <laughs> little, you. Little it's better. the only... It's the only one I can do that, of course, sounds even, you know, somewhere in the universe of Michael Caine. The Dark Knight trilogy, The Prestige, Inception, and Interstellar. Did I leave anything out there, Josh? Sounds right. Okay, Anne Hathaway. She appears in both The Dark Knight Rises and Interstellar. Joseph Gordon-Levitt does appear in both The Dark Knight Rises and Inception. Also from The Dark Knight trilogy, Morgan Freeman and Gary Oldman in all three films. A couple other standouts. We'll see if you go off the grid. You sometimes like to surprise Josh Robin Williams from Insomnia, Carrie Ann Moss or Joe Paneliano from Memento. I know how much you love Marion Cotillard and Maul in Inception. Mm -hmm. So is that where you went? Well, first off, Josh is right about Killian Murphy and really being the MVP, I think, for his his Scarecrow, his Robert Fisher, which I think is crucial to the emotional layers of Inception and, of course, the work in Dunkirk. So I did give him a lot of consideration, even though he's a little off the beaten path. And how about the entire supporting cast of Inception from Cotillard to Ken Watanabe. I mean, they're all they're all great. If you could just package them together, they would win this award. But I am going somewhere different. And it is Carrie Ann Moss as Natalie in Memento. We talked about, Adam, what might be the best performed moment in all of Nolan's films, where Natalie is sitting in her car waiting for Leonard's memory to reset. And then she changes her face, gets into character, and comes out to trick him. Mm. You know, it's it's kind of irresistible. It's one of these performances where the character has to give a performance. And I think that movie fans, cinephiles are kind of suckers for those sorts of turns. And Moss is just fantastic doing that in Memento. So that's my pick. You sad, sad freak. I can say whatever the I want. And you won't remember. We'll still be best friends. Or maybe even lovers. I'll see you soon. 
write this down. Gotta write it down. Concentrate, concentrate, concentrate. Yeah, that scene is one that really amazes on rewatch, and I'm with you on her performance. So before I knew that we had decided to go with this as the Heath Ledger Memorial Awards, I was thinking about it in these terms. Which performance is most crucial to the success of the film? I know it's kind of a cliche when people say, like, I can't envision anyone else in that role. But honestly, if you really think about not imagining that movie without that performance... I think it's got to be Heath Ledger, right? I just don't know how you play that sure. bizarre and mannered a character without it feeling bizarre and mannered. And as we touched on in our review a little bit, but more maybe in our Dark Knight Sacred Cow from a few years ago, it just never it never feels overperformed. But Ledger, of course, memorialized with the Oscar. We're going to memorialize him here. And I'm going to say that Anne Hathaway is absolutely getting my award. Huh. Because, Josh, I think the same does apply to her and The Dark Knight Rises. And I know I like that film a lot more than you and maybe a lot more than a lot of listeners, but I think it's such a dynamic performance as Selena Kyle slash Catwoman. She's funny. She's fun. She's seductive. She's smart. She delivers in all the action scenes. She hits really subtle emotional beats that make her a full rich character, not just a supporting player. And I'm so glad as well, maybe a little bit of a cheat, Josh, but as some of these people appear in multiple films... I'm really glad she's part of the journey in Interstellar, too, where I think she again nails all those emotional beats that she has while also pulling off probably being the smartest crew member in any room or on any planet. So I just think Anne Hathaway is incredible, and I would be very happy if she continued to work with Christopher Nolan. Yeah, my issues with The Dark Knight Rises really didn't have much to do with her. I think she's a lot of fun in that movie, so I'm with you there. Once you've done what you had to, they'll never let you do what you want to. Start fresh. There's no fresh start in today's world. Any 12-year-old with a cell phone could find out what you did. Everything we do is collated and quantified. Everything sticks. Is that how you justify stealing? I take what I need from those who have more than enough. I don't stand on the shoulders of people with less. Robin, huh? I think I do more to help someone than most of the people in this room than you. I think maybe you're assuming a little too much. Maybe you're being unrealistic about what's really in your pants other than your wallet. Ouch. You think all this can last? There's a storm coming, Mr. Wayne. You and your friends better batten down the hatches, because when it hits, you're all going to wonder how you ever thought you could live so large and leave so little for the rest of us. Best lead performance from our Nolan Oeuvre review. We can kind of go in order here. I forget if I'm saying this correctly, Josh, Jeremy Tybalt or Jeremy Theobald from uh, the following? I don't remember myself. Let's go with the okay. second. Well, how about neither of us pick him so we don't have to say it again? There you go. Okay. Guy Pierce from Memento, Hugh Jackman from The Prestige, Christian Bale from The Prestige and The Dark Knight Trilogy. We have Leonardo DiCaprio from Inception or Matthew McConaughey in interstellar josh who is it so for me there's a clear winner here and it is guy pierce as leonard and memento i'm giving both the acting awards to memento i think that's one of the things that? that really jumped out at me on this rewatch is how solid those performances are underneath all the amazing mechanics but yeah as far as leonard you know the levels of deception and self-deception at play are just so impressive how he balances those. The instinctive speed of this performance, you know, he's capturing a guy whose mind is spinning 
at every moment. And Pierce just makes us feel the activity and the energy. It's a very physical performance, even though all of that is taking space place in his head mm-hmm. we really feel it kind of in in just how he even carries himself honestly i don't think any other lead performance in any of his films comes close so i'm really curious to to hear where you went hmm. well i definitely considered pierce for me it came down to three choices here because they're the three clear best performances among the candidates i listed and it is pierce or it's christian bale in the prestige but you heard me on our last show talking about Interstellar oh, and Matthew no. McConaughey. Oh, no. no, he is he is absolutely the guy. He is getting my best lead performance, whatever we're calling these awards. And here's the thing, Josh, you could take out that single take close-up, the video message scene, and my answer would still be the same. Lift that out of the movie. It has yeah. nothing to do with that kind of show-stopping moment, even though I think he's incredible in it. It's, for me, that combination of explorer and engineer, swashbuckler and kind of scientist, if you will, and... Here's also what McConaughey can do. He can say to a teacher who thinks his daughter should be reprimanded for her behavior at school, all right, yeah, you know what? There's a game tomorrow night. She's going through a bit of a baseball phase. Her favorite team's playing. There's going to be candy and soda. I think I'll take her to that. And make it just deliciously polite but defiant fu and he also has the sense of humor and the natural kind of self-deprecation that when he looks out the window near the end and pridefully grins and says cooper station nice of you to name it after me and of course they point out that it was named after his daughter it's really funny but also really touching at the same time when they tell him that it is in fact named after murph instead yeah so that's that's the moment that I do think makes this performance work because it struck me upon watching Interstellar and thinking about McConaughey, who I like in this film and I think is good in the show stopping scene and probably even better earlier with his daughter. But I do think he needs a little bit of self deflation McConaughey. I'm saying as a performer in his roles for him to really work for me when he's playing just straight swashbuckler. And if you've seen him in some of some of these movies doing this where there's there's not that sort of like deflating of the persona. I don't think he works at all. You know, <laughs> there's no deflation. There's no deflation. It's no, but I just, what I'm yeah. saying, what I'm saying here is an interstellar that line you just talked about. The Cooper moment is a moment yeah. of, of deflation. Right. Okay. So, so okay. he's kind of the all right, all right. That, you know, he's, is he too serious otherwise in this film? Is that what you're saying? I don't know that McConaughey can be a hundred percent serious, and it will work for me. Hmm. I think he's got to somehow recognize that he's a little bit of the rooster in whatever movie he's in. And and the rooster is fun if he knows he's a rooster. If he doesn't, it can get a little silly. And I don't think, well, I think there are enough moments in Interstellar where, where he recognizes the rooster so that it does work for me. Well, the rooster is a good way to look at it, especially when you think about his voice a little bit. It gets to that kind of swashbuckling attitude that we're talking about. And I guess... For me, that's what's so amazing about this role, that we we still get the rooster come through, but all those other kind of serious scientific things he has to do, I believe him. Yeah. I believe he's him completely. Good. He's so good. I think he's amazing, so it's definitely my pick for best lead performance. Cooper, there's no point in using our fuel to Analyze chase- the endurance of spin. Cooper, what are you doing? Docking. Endurance rotation is 67, 68 RPM. Okay, get ready to match our spin with the retro thrusters. It's not possible. No, it's necessary. So we have two categories here now that are 
they're similar. And it's always hard in these marathons to kind of distinguish, well, maybe my favorite moment is the best Betty Davis moment, or it's the best Christopher Nolan moment, or whatever the the kind of marathon or retrospective topic is. And I definitely vacillated a little bit, but I'm going to give you some candidates. We'll see if I, I identified one here that you ended up landing on, Josh. With Nolan, you can definitely look, whether it's moments that feel uniquely Nolan-esque, or they are just great moments in his films. I look to action scenes like the fog chase and in insomnia, the plane crash in The Dark Knight Rises at the beginning, the Dark Knight's bank heist at the beginning and the truck chase, Inception's hallway fight, of course, the dogfight we get in Dunkirk. There are, of course, many great scenes of end revelations. Memento, I have to believe that my actions still have meaning. Prestige, learning the true magician's sacrifice. The top in Inception. There may be some outliers in terms of emotion when you think about just pure emotional intensity, the messages from home that we've already touched on in Interstellar, and then humor. We don't much associate Christopher Nolan and jokes, but that oh, wait, I'm chasing this guy moment in Memento is also really funny, right? And then, of course, there's just kind of the sublime imagery. And honestly, it's not just the running out of fuel gliding in Dunkirk. It's maybe, as we said during the review, that entire film. But you could look at Paris and the street folding in Inception, the field of bulbs in The Prestige, Joker's head out the window Mm. in the car in The Dark Knight. And I think, too, I think you touched on this moment in particular And there's a similar callback, I think, to it almost in Dunkirk with one of the boats in the water, the the vessel on the ocean planet in Interstellar and the the use of scale there. So those were a bunch of different candidates I came up with. We're going to start with the best Nolan moment. What's a moment from this marathon that most speaks to you as being uniquely him? So as opposed to scene, right now we're just, yeah, talking about the or uniquely it could be a scene, but sure. Nolan yeah. moment. Okay. Well, That's it. I, yeah, yeah I, I did go with the spinning top at the end of Inception because more for what it represents and symbolizes than the moment itself, though I do think it's perfect for the film. And I'm not going to belabor that. We argued a little bit about it when we revisited Inception. So I will set that aside, though I did consider it. That's why I made it partly my pick is because it's perfect for this movie. But it's also representative for me of how Nolan just holds the audience in his hands. And he manages to balance philosophy and entertainment in the same moment as this does. The audacity of thrilling us while still challenging us and not spoon feeding anything, not including a tidy, happy ending at all, but just giving us this moment that's going to take our breath away. And here, I just love that it's an entirely visual one. Mm -hmm. I, I think others have made, you know, the Nolan Hitchcock comparison before. And I think it's for this reason, this abu- this ability to manipulate in good ways the audience. So for me, that's exactly what he's doing when he's spinning that top. Um, if he were to, uh, you know, retroactively fit a logo for his production company, I think it should be the, the spinning top because I think it just does perfectly summarize what his movies do so well. Even though that moment from Inception doesn't resonate with me the way it does with you, I absolutely understand that choice. I ended up landing on something that I know has probably been talked about, at least in terms of one of these two movies I'm going to mention, and this particular shot, Josh. I know that there are fans of this moment in, well, I'll say it, in The Dark Knight, but it was watching Dunkirk and a parallel I made that really hit me as, you know what, even if this isn't something that is a signature Nolan shot, maybe we can't find an example of it in all of his films. The fact that I respond as strongly to it as I do in both of these instances, I'm calling it 
the existential stance, or maybe this will take hold, Josh. Maybe, maybe I can dream. People who write about Nolan's work will someday cite this. I'm calling it Nolan's Man of Nerve. So I'm thinking of The Dark Knight, and I'm thinking of Dunkirk, and it's that shot when we first see the Joker in The Dark Knight coming up slowly, tracking towards him from yeah. behind, right? Standing still. We see him pretty much in long shot, just kind of cut off at his shoes. He's tilting his head down a little bit, and he just in that moment looks, well, we just imagined him to be so menacing, and it, there's something so eerie about that, seeing him from behind with that stillness. And he uses it again in Dunkirk. He uses it again in Dunkirk when we see Tom Hardy finally land that plane and then stand in front of it as he watches it go up in flames. That's the first time we see that really beautiful shot of the plane on fire as nightfall is coming. And it's the same exact shot scale. The camera is moving more subtly, but it's behind Tom Hardy, cutting him off at the same place about the shoes, and Hardy is just standing there perfectly still, even with his head arched down a little bit. And for me, I use that phrase, Nolan's man of nerve, because that gets at one of the key themes for Christopher Nolan and his work, certainly one that has stood out to me throughout this overview, which is that Nikola Tesla line that David Bowie has, where he says, you're familiar with the phrase, man's reach exceeds his grasp? It's a lie. Man's grasp exceeds his nerve. Think about how many protagonists in Christopher Nolan movies that applies to. This idea of unbelievable ambition, trying to pull something off that seems impossible and unattainable, and the sacrifice that it requires to do that. Now, I think that applies even to Heath Ledger's Joker. We may not see that sacrifice in the same way we view the nobility of the characters in Dunkirk, obviously, and he's, he's a villain. I get all that, but think about the audacity of what he pulls off and is trying to pull off in completely crumbling the foundation of every person in Gotham and every institution in Gotham. And he comes really close to pulling it off. And I think it applies to Tom Hardy's farrier, too, in being willing to make that choice to keep going, to not turn back, to be the savior for so many of those soldiers by following through on his mission and taking out that German plane and then paying the price for it, watching his plane destroyed and getting captured. He decided that was worth it. He had to step up and actually be the man whose, whose nerve matched his grasp. And that's what we see. And I think that stance, for me, that stance somehow gets at that idea. It, it allows us to take in the man against the environment and consider what it is they just achieved or what it is they're about to achieve. Well, they both have a moment where they stand in front of something massive they've set on fire, right? With Joker That's true as well. lighting up that pile of cash. It's interesting you make that connection because, yeah, you, you could say that one is one's a hero, one's a villain. But in that moment boy, does Hardy look like Bane, doesn't he? When he's, cause oh, he's got, he's got the mask still on and he's got the military style jacket or the, the air pilot jacket on. And so it always reminds me of Bane too. Yeah. So if you go over to filmspotting.net, just in case you're doubting me about the symmetry between those two shots, go to filmspotting.net, click on lists. We will put it on that page. And I will put the screen grab so you can compare those two moments, what I'm calling Nolan's man of nerve. That then leads us to our overall favorite moment or scene from this overview. 
Where are you going, Josh? So this was hard because, as you were saying earlier, you know, sometimes it's difficult to delineate between a defining moment and a scene. Well, for me, this was difficult because so many of Nolan's bravura scenes are actually these extended parallel cut sequences. So they can go on for like 15 minutes or more, these chunks of his movies that I think of as, think of like the Inception multi-dream sequence near the climax. And really, honestly, Dunkirk could be the entire movie could be his best scene, right? Because it functions in this way. So I decided I ended up where you ended up, Adam, in a bit of an unusual place in terms of film for something so defining. But I think it's because I could pull out this concise, compact chunk from The Dark Knight, and it's Batman and Joker's standoff in the streets. It sort of begins just when Batman flips over the semi-truck. The reason I went this way is it's maybe his best practical stunt that Nolan pulls off, something that we have praised practical stunts throughout this overview. I love the switch in camera angles that he gives on the truck's flip. First, we see it from the side as it begins, and then we cut so that we're seeing it from the front, looking down the street, and it just creates this beautiful, these three vertical lines, right? The buildings on one side, the truck flipping over this vertical line in the middle, and then the buildings on the other side. Uh, It's just gorgeous. And also, So it's not just a stunt. There are so many character touches here between Joker and Batman. Mm -hmm. When when Ledger comes defiantly, yeah, he well first he comes stumbling out of the truck and and kind of accidentally fires the gun. It could have easily like shot himself in the leg. Just that Joker chaos (laughs) right there. But then you do get the standoff, right? The suicidal standoff between these two, which represents the defining nature of both of their characters. The choice that each of them are willing to make in that moment. That is what distinguishes them. We talked about how 1989's Batman is so much about how Batman and Joker are flip sides of the same coin. Here we get the moment of what that coin's edge is. Brilliantly staged. I think before that moment in The Dark Knight, Adam, I, I didn't think superhero movies could be this good. And it just completely elevated the genre for me. So that's my pick. It's a great choice. I promised earlier that we would hear from the listener who suggested the Polaroids as potentially the inevitable title of these awards, Jeff Post. He's in Inglewood, California, and he perfectly sets up my choice for my favorite moment or scene from the overview. Hi, Adam. Uh, Josh, Sam. It's Jeff Post from Inglewood, Colorado, calling in with my suggestion for what you should call the awards for the Nolan overview. Uh, the Polaroids that Leonard takes in Memento are d- tangible things as opposed to bois, and that's what I'd call them. I'd say the, the Polaroid for best performance goes to whoever. Uh, Nolan will often open his films with a shot that gives clues and kind of encapsulates everything that's about to follow. In Memento, Lenny's holding that Polaroid of the murder he's just committed, and he's periodically shaking it. And we used to do that because I was allegedly supposed to make them develop faster. But time's running backwards in Memento, and so it's like he's trying to keep the image from fading into oblivion. And that's, of course, what's happening to his memory, and it's all just a really nice visual distillation of my favorite film of his. It's dark, it's sinister, and it's you know it's just on the verge of disappearing forever. So I, I don't know if you needed that little sidetrack there, but I wanted to say it. So there you go. Uh, I will say I think that Nolan would approve of my idea because Polaroids are shot on real film, guys. Uh, Thanks. Love the show. 
Thank you, Jeff, for that. Very well argued. A great suggestion. And he's talking specifically about the moment at the beginning of Memento where we see Lenny with the Polaroid. But for me, the best moment or scene that definitely could have been my favorite Nolan moment from the overview is when he's holding the Polaroid at the end of the movie, when the black and white turns to color in Memento. This is that moment where it just feels like the quintessential Nolan moment to me in the film that is either, we'll hear in a moment, my favorite film of his or my second favorite film, and definitely one of the films that I've said before influenced my worldview and actually kind of my, I suppose, understanding of human nature. It is this movie. And so we get the two timelines intersecting there, right? That's the moment where the two timelines, the black and white stuff and the color stuff, some scenes that are broken up and interspersed that are going in chronological order, the black and white, with the color scenes that are going in reverse chronological order. And here it finally coalesces. The timelines do intersect and it's expressed completely visually, which seems so appropriate to Nolan. It's a silent moment. It's a visual moment. It's ostentatious because how could it not be when you're watching an image go from black and white to color in front of you? But it is somehow subtle. You can almost miss it the first time you watch it because it does happen while Leonard is looking at the Polaroid. Everything gets a little darker around him. We see the color come in, but it's really gradual fade. And as that image comes into view, so do we finally get clarity on Leonard's true character. That's when that comes into view. And we understand the depth of his depravity and his denial, which again, I think is a quintessential psychological part of so many quintessential Nolan characters. So it's the the thematic element to that moment, but it's also the fact that it deals with time. It's it's a moment in front of us where linear and nonlinear collide. And as I said, it is a clear visual, bold visual choice that Nolan makes as well. It just seemed perfect to me. Yeah, it's just, it's so audacious. And when we get to our rankings, uh, I'll I'll probably have more to say about Memento. Okay, well, let's go to those rankings. It is time for Best Picture from the Christopher Nolan Oeuvre Review. And we decided that we would announce the winner by finishing our rankings. We kind of started out doing rankings after every review. We'd say, okay, well, we watched that one, and now this one slots ahead of it or below. Maybe we got about three films in. Realize that would be a little clumsy. Let's build up some suspense. Let's do it at the very end. Before we do that, we're going to build up more suspense. We're going to share with you our recent poll results. We asked listeners to name Christopher Nolan's best film. So this, if you will, is our listeners' rankings of Christopher Nolan's best work, Josh Go ahead and share the results. So two titles received less than 1% of the vote, and those would be following, not a surprise, you and I had not seen it until this Uber review, Adam, and then Insomnia as well. Uh, the Dark Knight Rises, 1% of the vote. Batman Begins, 2% of the vote, and then a jump here to Interstellar, which had a few more fans, including you, Adam, 12% of the vote for that film. Very close, though, to Dunkirk, which received 13%. And then we have Inception, which received 15% of the vote. Here are the top three. The Dark Knight with 16%, The Prestige with 17%, and then Memento did win this poll 23% of the vote. So lots of titles there, pretty closely bunched together. Obviously a tough choice here for listeners. Jeremy Kennis said, man, it's hard to go against Inception or The Dark Knight, The Prestige or Dunkirk, or even Insomnia for that matter, but it has to be a memento for me. Not many films have blown my mind the way this film did and continues to. 
Here's Eric Hyman. I'd argue it's been a long downward slide since Memento, Nolan's best film. I'd love to see Nolan stripped of the outsized budgets and see if he might reconnect with the taut storytelling, character depth, and actual emotion of his breakout. I won't deny that some of the spectacle he's created in films like Inception and Dunkirk is initially impressive, but rarely does it resonate beyond the moment. Outside of Memento, only Heath Ledger's performance in The Dark Knight manages to break free of his overly engineered, overly complicated labyrinths. So can I say on behalf of both of us, Eric, we hear what you're saying, but you're completely wrong. And I I can say we hear what you're saying because I can completely disagree with him on virtually everything he said, but agree with him on one thought, which is as much as I love the spectacle and the big budget stuff, I'd have no issue with him going back to make a taut, yeah. leaner movie like Memento. Yeah, I, maybe maybe that's Tenet. I don't know. Um, but yeah, something like None that would know. be really exciting. John Dembski, I voted Interstellar. Thank you, John. It's the riskiest film he's made since Memento. Nolan often hides behind his puzzle box constructions, but in Interstellar, there are real breakthroughs. His characters express hurt, disappointment, grief, and hope. And I hope he infuses more of his future films with these ingredients, even if it means fewer plot twists and explosions. Shout out to Jessica Chastain, who is the key to the movie's success. Here's a note from Logan Brick. Most of Nolan's work is about emotionally stunted or otherwise damaged men who make great personal sacrifices for the sake of their duty in the world, whatever it may be. This idea might be interesting throughout even his most fantastical films, but in The Prestige, it comes down to reality. In The Prestige, it's personal because Nolan has endured the sacrifices of an artist. And I got to say, Adam, you know, we'll talk again about where prestige ranks now for me, but I was encouraged to see it this high up in the poll with listeners votes in second place, you know, with 17%, because I felt up to this point, that was one that's not talked about quite as much in his career as some of the other titles. So that was encouraging. Encouraging for me too, as you'll see in a moment when I get to my ranking, but I feel differently, actually. I've always felt like the prestige is one of those movies that is always in people's top three or the movie that they say is truly their favorite Nolan film. So didn't surprise me quite as much. Let's see if you'll surprise me, Josh, with your ranking. You get the honors first. Start at the bottom. All 10 films. Bring us to your number one. All right, let me run through these quickly here. In last place is The Dark Knight Rises. Then I've got Insomnia, Following, Interstellar, Batman Begins, The Prestige, The Dark Knight, Memento, Inception, and Dunkirk. So as far as what has shifted for me, The Dark Knight Rises fell a little bit. I know you love it, Adam. Probably the least rewarding revisit, even if there are still things that I do admire about it. Interstellar, I know it didn't jump up high enough for you. Adam, but it did move up two slots to where it is at now. Definitely nope. underrated some things about it, but I still think it's it's one of those, the grasp, the grasp there for Nolan, um, you know, just was a little further than, I don't mm. know if further than his nerve, but then what we okay. actually got. The Prestige, again, just praised it. I do think it's really good, but it fell a little bit for me. There were some character issues, especially with those supporting characters. The dead wife trope, was least successful, I think, for me with the prestige. So that fell a little bit. Here's the one that jumped up. And the real significant shift, I think, for me, Memento going to third place, which puts it on that tier really with Inception and with The Dark Knight for me as just, you know, an incredibly accomplished, brazen film for for a second film from a, a movie maker and the performances resonated with me much more this time honestly it just been a long time since since i'd seen memento and i had taken for granted slash forgotten how impressive it is so 
did move that one up a couple of slots. And Dunkirk, yeah, I mean, we'll get to it maybe when we talk a little bit more about our best picture choices, but it did stay in that top slot for me. Hmm. Okay, here's my ranking. Following, Batman Begins, Insomnia, Inception, The Dark Knight, The Dark Knight Rises, Dunkirk, I can see you shaking your head. The Prestige, Memento, and Interstellar, baby. Number one. So now I was thinking that, you know, we've closed the book on Nolan. Yeah. Said all there is to say, Adam, you have just opened things up. We've got to do this all over again. You, <laughs> really? We've we got to go gotta, back now? We gotta, Let's start we with the most recent mind. and go back. <laughs> exactly. Till you find your I mean, right headspace. <laughs> isn't it funny? We really haven't disagreed about these movies much throughout the overview. The biggest split we had was on Inception, where it it was lowered in my estimation, and you just really love it, lowered right? A but it's lot. not like yeah, it, it, well, yeah, but it's not like I hate Inception by any stretch of the imagination. I still give it ultimately a positive rating. But man, talk about differences in taste. Our lists are pretty radically different. Yeah. And, you know, the difference is what we respond to in a film, I think. But that might be a good question is like, are there any of these you would say you actively disliked? Because maybe for me, I could say that of The Dark Knight Rises, but even then it's, it's kind of a mixed response. I'm looking here what I actually rated it. Not that star ratings mean anything. I tell people that all the time, but it is helpful maybe a little bit engaging it. And I think my last viewing, I I gave it two and a half out of five on Letterboxd. So that would be mixed. So yeah, I think that's kind of like a baseline for our conversation is we're huge fans of this filmmaker. But as you're saying, we respond to very different things in his movies. Yeah, very different things. And it is true. I'm a fan of all 10 of the films. If you go by just a very basic baseline, looking at those star ratings, all of them have at least three stars out of five for me on Letterboxd, which means it gets the like. So I like all of these movies. In terms of shifting around a little bit, reappraising Insomnia did bump it up ahead of Batman Begins on my list. So I have more respect for that film, but it didn't go too high. What's really weird, Josh, is if you look at my seventh and sixth spots, I've got Inception and The Dark Knight. So two of his movies that are most beloved, including by you, fell the furthest on my list. In Inception, that is based on my reaction to the movie this time. The Dark Knight falling to where it did, down to sixth, when before I think I maybe had it in the third slot, definitely no lower than four. It tumbling, if you will, down to six has nothing to do with me feeling really any differently about The Dark Knight. It's just having such a strong reaction to some other films this time around, and that would include The Dark Knight Rises. It would include Dunkirk, which actually went up from number five to four on my list. The Prestige was always in my top five, but now it's a really tough debate for me between it being the number two best Nolan film or the number three. I could easily change my mind on that. And Interstellar jumping up a slot even ahead of Memento. So yeah, two films took a tumble, but it really isn't reflective of, at least in one of those cases, that movie not being a very good film or a movie that I have a ton of admiration for. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. And I think that's a good way to couch it too, is is it's gaining enthusiasm for certain titles over finding flaws in things that you didn't see before. Probably that was overall my experience as well. Well, does that do it? Does that conclude our inaugural overview? You know, I think so. I was just, the only other thing I want to say about Dunkirk, just in in its favor, is that I do think 
here's what I like. It seems to strip away all of his tricks and just give us a war picture, right? On the surface, you could almost sit through it and think that's what you got, which is his greatest sleight of hand for me. Just the fact that it's not as showy as Memento or Inception or Interstellar when it plays with time, but still ultimately more impressive in what it achieves by playing with time. It's more affecting. I think, um, yeah, like I said, if you can be emotionally moved by actual craft, that's what happens to me with with Dunkirk. And to have it happen a third time, you know, that doesn't wear off for me. So I couldn't, as much as Memento did jump up for me in my appreciation, mm-hmm. it couldn't quite get there to knock Dunkirk off. So so that's yeah. that's where I'm at. I get it. And we did just talk about Interstellar as our last Nolan conversation, so I don't want to repeat too much of that. But what you just said... In terms of being moved, that's the movie that moves me the most emotionally, but also wows me as much or almost as much as any of the other films we talked about in terms of craft. It's that marriage that for me makes Interstellar so special. And you know what? Maybe part of it, I mean, honestly, I don't need to provide excuses for Interstellar. I clearly think it's a great film or I wouldn't have put it at number one. But watching it with my daughter and it's such a a father daughter movie, obviously, and Embarking on this whole oeuvre review, she's been along for the ride the whole way, and it's just going to be a special movie. One movie we saw together already when she saw it for the first time in 70mm at the Music Box, as I mentioned. So I guess I have a little bit of history with it, but I genuinely think it's a great film, and that's why it's my number one Christopher Nolan movie, and thus does conclude our Nolan oeuvre review. We will provide links to all of our previous discussions and these awards over at filmspotting.net. I promise you will be able to find our oeuvre review page right on the main page of filmspotting.net, including all of our picks for these awards. Everybody ready to say goodbye to our solar system? To our galaxy. Here we go. For more Christopher Nolan oeuvre review conversations, visit filmspotting.net from July 2020. Those were our Nolan oeuvre review awards. And Josh, that is our show. Get ready for Barbenheimer. <laughs> if you want to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Letterboxd, Threads, why not Threads? Sure, Threads. Instagram, sure. Blue Sky, I don't know. I can't keep up. <laughs> anyway, Adam's at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. The current Film Spotting poll has us asking about horror movies, specifically the kind of horror movie you find most terrifying. For show t-shirts or other merch, go to filmspotting.net slash shop. Film Spotting is listener supported. You can join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com. For as little as five bucks a month, you can listen to the show early and ad free. Plus, you get Sam's weekly newsletter and monthly bonus shows. Not only do you get the Nolan Oob review that we've touched on, the Mission Impossible reviews in that film spotting archive, but how about our top five Tom Cruise performances? That was episode 651 from 2017. Filmspottingfamily.com is where you can sign up and get all of those benefits. Out streaming this weekend, they clone Tyrone, a comic conspiracy thriller with John Boyega, Tayana Paris, and Jamie Foxx. Great cast. Didn't know a lot about this one until Sam put it on our radar. Want to see it? Well, you weren't listening closely. It was one of my top five summer mm. movie questions, Adam. Ouch. I'm insulted. Foot, insert foot into mouth. <laughs> I'm eager eager to watch this one when it hits Netflix. In limited release, Cobweb, a 70s set movie about making movies. Well, I'm in. From Korea's Kim Ji-won, who made I Saw the Devil and A Tale of Two Sisters. It stars Song Kang-ho. Hey. One of, one of the best 
out there doing it these days. One of your actor-director pairings along with Bong Joon-ho on last week's show. He plays a B-movie director battling with a studio. I need to find a theater that's playing this near me. Earth Mama, a new one from A24 that has gotten a lot of acclaim as well. An impressive debut that is opening in limited release. But yeah, it's the wide release weekend of Greta Gerwig's Barbie and Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. We're going to give everybody a chance to see those films and come with all your notes. We'll break it down. We were not planning to do sort of an Oppenheimer versus Barbie thing. We were going to give them both their own separate space. I think we'll stick with that plan, though, if it ever made sense to to pit two oh, man. giants against each other. It seems like this was made for it. Pull that holiday season conceit out of mothballs when we yep. did two or three years in a row of fighting. No, I don't, I don't think we need to do that in this case. Okay, well, look forward to that next week here on Film Spotting. Film Spotting is produced by Sam Van Halgren. Our production assistants are Betty Lavendero and Veronica Phillips. Special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. You can get more information at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.